Welcome to this special combined broadcast of Good Heavens and Apologetics Profile. Here is your host, staff apologist Daniel Ray. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens are silently telling of the glory of God. There is no audible speech, their voice is not heard, and yet this proclamation of divine glory radiates throughout the entire world. And in Matthew chapter 3 we find that the heavens are opened and the voice becomes audibly clear. The glory of God is found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Quote, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. End quote. On part two of our discussion with Dr. Lewis Marcos of Houston Baptist University, we explore in greater detail how the myths of the ancient world point us to Christ. Did Jesus use pagan imagery and ritual to speak of himself to the curious Greeks? Why did Paul use poetry about Zeus to point to Christ? We live in a culture not so dissimilar from the ancient Athenians. We have erected our altars both to known and unknown gods. Next to the Bible, our culture's most acclaimed accomplishments in art, architecture, music, and literature emanate from Greek and Roman mythology. Like the Apostle Paul, like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, we can too redemptively engage these myths and rekindle afresh our imaginative and rational faculties in order to engage our culture and point people toward the truth in Christ Jesus and what he has done for us. Here again is Dr. Lewis Marcos. Now, I can't prove this, but I'll, I'll make the argument as I do in the book. John chapter 12, it is Jesus's last public discourse, and it's already the time of the Passover, and it turns out that there are a bunch of Greeks who have come to the Passover, and they go to Philip, the disciple who has a Greek name, and they say, we would like to see Jesus. And they go there and tell Jesus, these Greeks would like to see you. And what does Jesus say? The time, of, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says these beautiful words, except a grain of wheat, it would be corn in the King James, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it will remain a single seed. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Now, whoa, what's going on here? You go and search the whole Old Testament. You won't see a metaphor like that. The Old Testament has plenty of seasonal metaphor, but this idea of the seasonal cycle of life and death and rebirth and the seed that must die, this is really not a Hebrew metaphor that's used much. It's only used one other place in the Bible, and that's 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul speaks of the resurrection body. But of course, Paul is writing to the very Greek city of Corinth when he writes that. Now, here's the one thing I can't prove. We don't know where these Greeks are coming from. But Daniel, they're obviously Greeks interested in Hebrew rituals. They've come to the Passover. And I'm going to theorize that they might be part of the most ancient and most highly esteemed cult of the Greek world, the Eleusinian Mysteries. And if in fact they are Eleusinians, then Jesus is saying to them directly, you have been worshiping the seed that dies. You have been worshiping life and death and rebirth. I am that seed. Hmm. Now, therefore, what you have worshiped in ignorance, I will proclaim to you as known. That's what Paul says in Acts 17. 
Yeah. But I'm going to theorize that Jesus, because otherwise, why? It's a strange metaphor. He doesn't use it again. Uh, it seems to be told in direct response to these Greeks who want to see him. So again, to me, that's, that's maybe Jesus saying, I am the corn king. Lewis doesn't use that argument. Uh, so I'm not quoting Lewis there, but but I think it's very possible that's what he's doing. Isn't that wonderful? That is, that's amazing. And it would make sense because of the way in which John begins the gospel by borrowing a Greek term logos. Yeah. So he's he's and I mean this is this is consistent with um what your overall argument is in that God preparing the world for the arrival of his son in this time. And so you have these setups if you will, these right. pre-incarnate stage setups here comes the christ the son of the living god into the greco-roman world uh we have these things in place that give the greeks and the romans an anchor going oh that means that oh you know oh wow okay the logos is flesh oh you know and john didn't make up logos it was something that he he borrowed from this and it reminds me of your chapter on i think it's in the 100s 98 99 you're talking about the the shadows and copies of heavenly things in hebrews right. in plato's cave you give the the cave analogy and i think i think that's what you're talking about here it seems that 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 we've had these shadows and copies of heavenly things paul at the altar in athens you know that that you worship an unknown god so it would make sense that Jesus would would talk about you're worshiping an unknown God too, you know. And he uses Samaritans and he uses all these other um, uh, cultural things to 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 share the truth of who he is. But the Greeks, I mean, even with the Koine Greek language and Alexander and the conquering of the Mediterranean world, God is God is seeding the Greco-Roman world with Koine Greek, you know. Pretty soon, go, go back to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, right? It starts with yeah. Babylon, right? The next one is Persia. Who's the first king of Persia? Cyrus, the one God raises up to send the Jews back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Right. He's the only Gentile who is actually called Messiah. I have called my anointed one Cyrus. Such an incredible, accurate prophecy that liberal theologians have to completely redate Daniel because yes. they don't believe in <laughs> that's right. prophecy, right? So that's, right. They don't admit, that's why they're doing it. But anyway, uh, then the next kingdom is the Greeks, which is Alexander the Great. And that's what gave us Koine. That's what gave us universal empire, even before Rome came along. Mm. That's what allowed us and spread Koine and Greek culture throughout not only the Greek, but the North African and Middle Eastern world. And then along comes Rome, the fourth kingdom. And Rome gives mm-hmm. us the Pax Romana. It gives us clean roads, or safe roads, I mean, and, and safe waterways by which you can travel. Paul could have never spread the gospel without being killed 5,000 times mm. if the Romans had not civilized the world. What else? Whatever the Romans ever given to us. Anyway, so you know what? You know what it looks like, Daniel? It looks like, as we learn in The Horse and His Boy, it looks like Aslan is behind all the stories, huh? Yes. Indeed, Behind it does. All the it does. Wow. And as, as Paul says to the Athenians after he quotes their altar, he says, God's overlooked all this shenanigans. Yes. And now it's time to repent. You know, greater. Someone greater than Jonah is here. The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Uh, you know, and so there's, God has given, and I think it's Romans 1 as well, that, that what we're talking about here, Lou, is is precisely what God is saying, that, that through what he has created, through what he has made, through what he has permitted, in the setting up of kings, in the giving of wisdom to Daniel, to Babylonians, to, to, to Cyrus, to, to Nebuchadnezzar, in the setting up of wisdom, of the setting up, uh, the process behind the incarnation. God is setting up the world to receive his son. 
Um, and so you see that in, in, in everything that God has made. And uh, so it's, it's not a surprise. I have this wonderful quote on my wall from uh, Hans Christian Andersen, the, the, oh, the poet. He says, um, every person's life is a fairy tale written by God's fingers. You know, the whole idea that our lives are narratives. Uh, the cosmos is a narrative. The physical creation is a narrative because Romans 1 says all of this stuff is telling a story about the narrative, about the nature of who God is through what God has made. Through what God has permitted, He has He He is revealing Himself to us, uh, His invisible attributes to us. So when we get to Cyrus, as you say, we hear this term "anointed one." What? What does that mean? Or He calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. How offensive that would have been to to the Jewish people. I'm not going to serve Nebuchadnezzar. What do you mean, God's servant? What is this? Um, but He's setting up this idea of of His Son coming. And so the and, Greco- you know, two of the major. Um- or what I call them, two of the major titles of Caesar Augustus who found the Roman Empire were Prince of Peace because he brought the Pax Romana yes. that brought peace, the longest reign of peace the Western world has known. But he was also known as the Son of God because he was the yeah. adopted son of Julius Caesar who was deified after he died. And yeah. so he was the Son of God and Prince of Peace and during his reign, the Son of God and Prince of Peace was born. These yeah. things are not accidents. No, it no. All come together. No, right? it, 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 all the strands, as it were, coming together. Let's talk about uh, let's let's talk about a specific uh, myth for just a second. One of my favorites, um, Hercules. Now, I oh. love I love the constellation of Hercules because in the in the uh, northern hemisphere, uh, you can see. Hercules, the constellation of Hercules, once I point it out to people, it's like, oh, you can't see it. It's like a man with a club over his head and one foot raised over the head of Draco the dragon. And and so the, the mythology in your book is so cool because it talks about well, why is Hercules ready to crush the dragon? Well, it was one of the one of his impossible labors, you know, that we have. But we have this idea. I, I, in, in constellation lore, we have this idea of the strong man. We have Ophiuchus, the serpent handler, who's wrestling with a giant serpent. We have something along the lines in Perseus, who defeats Catos or Cetus, the sea monster. Um, and we have Orion doing. There's a there's an ancient lithograph on a cave somewhere. I don't know if it's pre-Babylonian or whatever. Um, there's not a whole lot of reference on it, but it's obvious that it's Orion. And instead of Orion battling or facing a bull, the right. the V-shape of Taurus in this lithograph is believed to have been a hydra or a devil or a dragon of some kind. Oh. So so but we have we have this idea of the strong man doing battle with and we have Sagittarius the archer who has his bow poised against the, the, the nefarious uh, Scorpius who's who stung Orion in the heel and killed him. But we have this idea you know, between Perseus and Hercules and Ophiuchus and Orion we have this idea of a strong man in the heavens who is delivering, who is doing, who is fighting beasts and battles that, human, humanly speaking, are impossible for us to do. You talk about the heroes of old who rid Greece and Rome of all the monsters. Um, but this seems to be a dominant theme in the constellations. And it also, I think, clearly is, is, a, is a pre-incarnate manifestation of what Jesus does and has done for us. To me, I mean, you, you can line up Hercules' story with Samson amazingly, right? Samson yeah. is the most Greek, right? And yet, Samson, with all his flaws, points ahead to Christ. Yes. Think about it. And yeah, it know. says this very specifically in the Bible that, you know, the famous, you know, jawbone of an ass and all. But it says in his death, he killed more Philistines than in his life. He freed the people 
in his death. Oh, Lord, let me die with the Philistines. Pull down the pillars. All that comes down. Oh, my gosh. Is there another hero who, in his death, sets us all free? It's amazing because there's so many differences between Samson and Jesus, and yet they point forward as well. Now, what I love about Hercules, though, is he is this great strong man. He always uses the club. He almost yeah. never, either his hands or a club. He doesn't normally use a sword. He can't, right? But right. there's something more private. He's like, he's like Beowulf. There's something more yes. private about him. Yes, it. yes. But, but what's interesting is the story, and this story actually appears in Xenophon, uh, one of the Greek historians. And the story is that before he began, you know, all of his great labors and became the great hero that he was, that there's an early incident in the story when Hercules was a young man, and we call this story Hercules at the Crossroads. And the belief was that Hercules, young man, came at a crossroads where the two come together, and there he's met by two beautiful women, mm. one in white and one in red. Yes. And the woman in red says, you know, uh, you know, follow me, Hercules, and I will give you ease and victory over everything. You'll have anything you want. You'll, you'll, you know, you can you'll be lavish and, and whatnot. But then the woman in white says, don't listen to her. The way I give you is difficult, but it will bring you true fame and glory and honor. He has to choose between these two things. And in the end, he takes his club and beats down the woman in red and chooses the path of virtue, though he falls apart a lot of times. Yeah. Now, this is amazing because and remember that, that Hercules is the son of Zeus. Mm -hmm. I know another son of Zeus, or I should call him the son of God who came to a crossroads where he had to make a difficult decision, right? Shall I follow, follow the father's will or shall I let that cup pass away? Mm, mm. Actually, Jesus comes to two crossroads at the beginning of his ministry when he's tempted 40 days yeah. in the wilderness. Yeah. And again, you know, just before he's arrested in the garden and what we call the garden of Gethsemane. So again, this is amazing. We have this hero, this son of God who has a difficult choice to make, who, who is presented with dilemma and must make the right choice mm. and therefore becomes the hero. Now, again, there, there's all sorts of, you know, terrible theology in, in um, uh, what is it called? The Last Temptation of Christ, more so in the movie than in the book. Right. But there is one true thing about The Last Temptation of Christ. And the point of that is the last temptation is Christ's temptation to say, it wasn't worth it. I shouldn't have done this. I should have just got married, had a family, and lived a normal life. That's the last temptation. And even in the movie, at the end, he he chooses, and he's on the cross dying. Now, again, there's all sorts of problems with that movie, um, in, including the fact that the Christ they present has no authority whatsoever. He's a complete loser, and nobody would follow him unless they were a fool. Uh, but still, that one aspect is very important. The last temptation is for Jesus to say, this was a waste would have been better if I, whatever, married Mary Magdalene and had a family, which would have been a Jewish thing to do. But no, you need to choose the right path. It's the path you don't want to choose, right? We all know in, in you know, cartoons with the, yeah. the little angel, the little devil. I mean, all of it is that sort of Hercules at the crossroads, right. Jesus being tempted 40 days in the wilderness and making the right choice. And in a sense, that makes Hercules a hero just as much as his legendary strength mm. is mm. his choice of the path of virtue. And most of those um, labors that he does, many times Hercules imposes them upon himself after he's done some terrible sin or left the path of virtue 
and wants to atone. So he's a mm. fascinating multidimensional character, Hercules, mm. or Heracles, as the Greeks call. And you, and, and I just want to tell my listeners that your book is filled with this kind of insightful stuff. That's just one chapter. Uh, and and you go through and I like I said at the beginning the book is set up like a devotional where you can read it, uh, you can skip around find your favorite myth, um, and you are you you read the myth you've translated the myths in your own vernacular, right? Uh, and then you have an application and then you have some substantial footnotes you have uh, some questions for students you could do with a book study. Right. Um, now, it's wonderful. And so the one thing that I think I know some people might say is after reading this going, hey, Lou, your mind's kind of wandering a little too far afield here. Uh, what do you mean? You mean you mean that there's legitimacy in some of this paganism? And, and, and how do you know that this stuff is really there? How do I know you're not just making this up? Uh, you know, I'm not even going to worry about messing with this messy mythology because it just gets I, the line gets so blurred I can't see what I'm doing um, how would you respond to critics like that in terms of uh, in terms of your approach in, in this regard let's begin with something that anybody that grew up in Sunday school gets this wrong right what did they teach you in Sunday school why did Jesus teach in parables so it would be easy and everybody would understand I think we all were taught that in Sunday school whatever yeah. our denomination and then one day you read the Bible and Jesus says, I speak in parables so they won't understand, right? So that only those yeah. who have eyes to see will see and those who have ears to hear will hear, mm. right? We need to have that kind of discernment. Now, thankfully, when I go into the Greek mythology, I don't go blind. I not only, of course, have all of Christian theology, I have the Bible as my touchstone as my measure, right, yeah. as, the, as my yardstick. So we've got to say that. And also it's very important here that what we are looking for and what we're not looking for. All right, those, those people that, you know, are sort of into censorship, Christians that are into any kind of censorship, they might point to that passage in uh, the book of Acts where the believers all burn their pagan books. We all remember that. Now it's yeah. very important. Please go back and read that. I can't remember, 13 Acts, it's an Acts. I can't remember the number, but... It's very important that they are not burning copies of the Iliad or the Odyssey or Oedipus or Antigone or Plato or Aristotle. They are burning literally books of spells. And incantations, okay? right. These are magic, magical arts and yeah, things. We need yeah. to be careful. And even I, uh, who read all of this stuff, I'm sometimes a little bit leery, for instance, of what are called runes. I mean, I really think Norse mythology is cool, but there are some places where I'm going to be a little careful. I don't want something, you know... What's the difference between black magic and white magic? And I think this is a legitimate distinction. Black magic is all about power. That's the Satanism that promises you power and control. Witchcraft, voodoo, all of that sort of stuff. Santeria, which is a mixture of Catholicism and voodoo. Watch out for that stuff, right? White magic is all about sympathy. It is about seeing the connections. So those are the new agers we can reach out to. If you, if you meet a new ager who's actually a witch... And she invites you to her house, don't go. You need to be careful of that. But if you can find people that really are looking for a meaningful universe, who look at the stars, Daniel, as you do, and Michael Ward and C.S. Lewis, who look at the stars and want to see not just a flaming ball of gas, mm. but who want to see fingerprints of the creator, right? right? There are plenty of people out there who are not believers but are yearning for that kind of stuff. And we can say, look, God's fingerprint is everywhere. Yes. But you have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. You need 
discernment. You need to be careful. So yes, don't don't rush into this without an understanding, without a background. Mm-hmm. But if you've got God's discernment, and that's what wisdom is in the Bible, it's not being yes. a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon, right? Wisdom means the ability to discern, which is what Solomon had, and he asked for it because he was a young man who had to rule a giant kingdom. I can't rule unless I have discernment. Right? How few right. of our politicians today, Daniel, have anything even coming close to discernment is pretty scary. But that that's what you need. So so yes, you know, you, you go into it with a little bit of fear and trembling, but you go into it saying, Hey, the God I worship is the God who created all the nations, who set their times and places yes. so that they might reach after him and grope after him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Mm-hmm. As your own pagan poets have said, we are his offspring. Right. Back to Acts 17. And I say it because a lot of people don't realize. Paul is quoting two different pagan poets. Yes. One pagan poet named Epimenides said, in him we live and move and have our being. The other one, Aratus, said, we are his offspring. In both cases, the he is Zeus. But Paul is saying, no, without realizing it, they're pointing to the greater reality that is behind Zeus. Right. And so, yes, we do need discernment. Uh, we, do, we don't be a fool, right? We, well, we be someone careful. And you... It's interesting too. I know you don't really address this in the book, but it did bring this thought to mind of C.S. Lewis's um, dialogue with Ransom. I think it's at the end of um, oh yes, the end out of, of uh, Out of the Silent Planet, where Lewis is as the narrator. He's he's C.S. He's he's himself, and he's dialoguing with Ransom through letters, uh, fictionally of course. But I think it's in the words of Ransom that uh, Lewis writes that there is always a mythology that follows in the wake of science. And so in a kind of reverse way, Lou, your book helped me to see more clearly this fact of what Lewis is saying, that as we denigrate the ancient mythologies, we kind of suffer from what Lewis had said is chronological snobbery. We are advanced technologically. We know more. We're better. We're better off because we live in the 21st century. We have cell phones and we can go to the moon. This idea, and this this was something that Lewis was addressing in the mid-20th century, of course, this idea that the most, the, the current civilization, the current culture is is the wisest, the most informed, the most advanced. This is chronological snobbery. But this, I think, is 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 the fact that, that exactly what Ransom is saying here, that, that we live in a time of science says. Um, we are struggling with science says. Uh, we are being told to follow the science. We are told to accept the science. I have many dialogues in social media with people who are yelling at me to accept the science, even when I just ask a couple of questions like, how do you know that's a hominid skull from 200,000 years ago? How do you know what happened 200,000 years ago? How do you know that? And and so the mythology, I think, today is this science says, this rationality says. That, but that requires us to abandon our imagination for this rather logical, linear, mono, and I say mono, monochromatic, Right. Blanched of all imagination, and and so I can't help but say that while our science says is just stripping our lives of all kinds of meaning, what are we doing? We're running to the movie theaters. We're binge watching on Netflix. We're listening to stories because we are being starved for meaning and purpose. As you you and alluded to, no Carl matter, Sagan's Blue Dot. Well, no matter how crazy liberal the Hollywood people are, when you watch uh, uh, Endgame, the, the the end of the you know the Avengers series. What happens? It ends with the most narcissistic of them all, Iron Man, sacrificing himself. It ends with the gospel. 
I don't, I don't, they, they keep wanting to, they keep giving us all their crazy, you know, uh, get into politically correct stuff. But in the end, they can't break out of the real sacred narrative. They can't break out of true heroism because it's written in our DNA. Let's go back to where we began. You talked about that, that, that newspaper, the, the radio guy. Many years ago, my parents live in Florida. I was in Florida, and there was this radio evangelist, this good, godly man, he's, he's since passed away, who was telling people, don't read C.S. Lewis. And since I was in town, they said, can you talk to him? And we sat down, and as I expected, he had never read any C.S. Lewis. He had read something online about Lewis being a heretic. Ooh, okay, none of that, you know, we were, we're used to that. What blew my mind is when I said to him, well, sir, what have you read by C.S. Lewis? Have you read the Chronicles of Narnia? And his answer was, Ever since I became a believer 40 years ago, I've not read a single work of fiction. He didn't even read the Left Behind series, which is probably a good thing, Daniel. <laughs> he didn't read any. And here's the, now I didn't say this because I was a young man. I wasn't going to be a whippersnapper. But if you ask that man, why don't you read fiction? He would say, because I'm a Christian. But I would argue, and this was a light bulb for me, the real reason he doesn't read fiction, the reason he doesn't know himself is that he's a modernist and doesn't realize it, okay? Mm. I, I have a lot of thankfulness for the fundamentalists 100 years ago that were fighting Darwin, but they made a categorical error. They accepted the phony belief that something is not true unless it's scientifically, logically, positivistic truth. And once we did that, we lose the argument. You cannot judge the Bible by a modern verification system that is only a couple hundred years old, right? right? If you say there's no contradictions in the Bible, I'm going to say, how do you mean that? If you mean it in a traditional understanding, of course, but if you mean it as so many do in a modern, logical, positivistic sense, then you're wrong, okay? Mm. In the modern sense of the word, which which I, re I reject their worldview, but the modern view says contradiction means anything even logically different. If we accept that, we're going to lose, right? right. In, in a couple of the Gospels, it says both of the thieves on the cross were making fun of Jesus. Only in Luke does it say one of them said, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Now, we have no problem because we understand that this is an ancient book, and we have four different Gospels that are giving four different eyewitness accounts from different perspectives, mm. right? We understand that now. We understand that if you showed the gospel narratives of the resurrection to a impartial judge, that judge would probably rule on it being authentic. Why? When you're a judge, you listen to the eyewitness accounts. Now, if the eyewitness accounts are completely various, you're going to say there's a problem here. But if all the eyewitness accounts are exactly the same, which we evangelicals often think we want, then he would say this is collusion and throw it out. Yeah. What we get in the Gospels is what a good judge expects, right? That they are different accounts that complement each other, but are not exactly the same. Yeah. That's what we get because the the God, you know, look, if God wanted to write the scientific textbook that a lot of you know evangelicals want, there would only be one gospel. There wouldn't be four. And we certainly wouldn't have that ridiculous first and second chronicles. What's that all about? I just already read that in first and second Kings, first and second judge. I mean, this is it's kind of crazy, right? You wouldn't have that much poetry. That's for sure. Right. You wouldn't have Jesus speaking most of his teachings in poetry, what they call parallelism and Hebrew poetry. I mean, so we, we need to break away from this. We, we made a categorical error 
when we accepted to fight on their grounds. That's right. We've allowed our skeptic friends and uh, the the inherent attractiveness, I think, of the utilitarian, logical, positivist. Uh, it's only true if I can see it with my own two eyes or if I can weigh it in a scale or see it through a telescope or do something tactile with it. Of course, logical positivism was that movement in the, 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 the Vienna School uh, back in the day in the 20s that Lewis was fighting against. C.S. Lewis was yes. fighting against this uh, uh, this absolutist kind of knowledge. But it, it, it has in within it an inherent flaw in that um, you can't actually scientifically prove that all – logical statements must be scientifically proven because that's that statement can't be scientifically proven and and i guess a few people figured that out pretty quickly and it collapsed but it's so sad today lou because we are living in and among a culture of what i call zombie logical positivism yeah yeah that's good because everybody is, is we're back right back at this idea that if it's not science it can't be true, or it can't be. It should, don't even mess with it. I don't even want to hear it. And evangelicals, as you've said, with that, with the example of that radio gentleman, mm-hmm. uh, to it. we we've, we're we're right there. We're like if I, people are demanding, skeptics and atheists in the dialogue with apologetics today are demanding scientific evidence for the gospels, uh, scientific evidence for miracles. They want scientific evidence for this. They want to know what method I use to test the belief in Jesus. They they come at this with a completely rational, logical, linear thing, and we decide to sort of envelop this. And, and and speak the language of science, and we lose the distinction of the language that Jesus uses poetically, incarnationally, relationally. We're stripped of all of that. It's like C.S. Lewis's essay, The Empty Universe. You, we start tearing away the accretions, right? And pretty much we're down to, now we're just down to atoms in the void, Democritus. Right. Uh, we've torn away all the accretions, all the myths, all the stories, and now there's nothing. The universe is empty. And that's where we are. We live in an empty universe. There's stripped one word that describes the 2021st century. It's reductive. We've yeah. been reduced. And we see it right now, reducing us to our race or class or gender. So it's right. all reductive. It's not humanistic at all. In fact, it's mm-hmm. the modern humanist is an anti-humanist. They that's don't right. believe in human things. We're, we're, you know, it's what they call identity politics. Marxists, we're, that's we're right. part of a group and that's it. We have that's no right. individual autonomy or worth or value. It, and, and you know, they, they can't sustain their own fight for justice because real justice rests on the fact that we all have essential inherent worth because we were made in the image of God. That's if right. we're just the result of Darwinian natural selection, if we are only identified by our group, then we do not have inherent worth and value. So their whole system, you know, what Lewis said, naturalism is self-refuting. Is. If naturalism, the belief that all there is is nature, if it's true, then you can't come up with a scientific system called naturalism because you can't rely on your reason and your observation in a world where there is no truth. That's right. So it just, That's it just right. flattens itself out and destroys it. That that guy you mentioned, his name is A.J. Ayer. A.J. Ayer, that's right. Yeah, he was yeah. the king of logical positivism. And somebody finally said to him, you can't, you know, just what you said, you're, you're caught in circular law. And it worked. He just kind of shut up and it was done. Uh, but you're right. Now it's almost more dangerous because we've bought into it even though they've gone away from it. That's right. That's right. We we it's it's an ignorance of the past and I think uh one thing if I can say, you know, in a sentence what I think your your book is 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 needful is that it's it's kind of ironic and paradoxical, but I think this is how Jesus works. That we need myth and story, and I mean myth in a meaningful sort of meaningful narrative, not necessarily false, but meaningful narratives. I mean Iron Man might be false in one right. sense, 
But in another sense, it's absolutely true um, that 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 this is absolutely in our DNA to be sacrificial, heroic, and 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 good, and justice, and all this stuff. But it, it's interesting because your book, the ancient myths, I think, are absolutely what we need in addressing the modern falsehoods. I won't even I won't even give the modern ideological problems that we're dealing with the the category of myth. I would call them falsehoods before I'd even call them myth because I'm not even sure that in Marxism or, or Darwinism or or um, all the other isms that we're struggling with, critical race theory or whatever, that 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 they propose uh, there's nothing in these in these narratives that propose heroism or justice. It's true, yeah. It's it's reductionistic down to I'm this, so let's do this, or I'm this, let's do this. It's very reductionistic based on one premise. Uh, you know, Marxism, it's class and critical race, it's race. In science, it's biology. And right. you know, so we're reduced to our biology, we're reduced to our our phenotype, we're reduced to our, our, our socioeconomic status. They're all elementary but there's no savior in it. There's right, no right. there's no hero in it. It's it's basically either science or the government. Um, telling you in a very reductionistic sense uh, what we're going to do, but there's no hero, there's no striving, there's no longing, there's no, there's no nothing that that makes us human is really addressed. It's eviscerated. It's and like it's it's a myth without any possibility of redemption. So yeah, that's the, that's CRT, good. the critical race. If if you're a black person, there's no redemption because there's no sin to be redeemed for. But if you're a white person. You can go on and on and talk about white fragility and make a fool out of yourself, but there's still no ultimate redemption. Mm. You're you're still a useless idiot, and there's no redemption for you. No reconciliation with you. Yeah, no reconciliation. It's it's just going to go on again. And you, you, the the proof of that is that the original Marxist identity politics was all about uh, class, right? And the modern CRT people couldn't care about the poor working class. The old idea of the working person, and they've moved it to either the race or the transgender or whatever, but they've sort of abandoned that, and they don't care mm-hmm. about the working men, the blue-collar no, workers in the same it, world. It's, it's not very strange. It's a, it's it's very selective, and it's not, uh, and, and it's, they attempt to apply it universally, but 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 it it scorns our identity as being created in the image of God, and so the redemption has to come from we're back again to this need of a savior. I mean, if if anything of Marxism, of positivism, of, of critical race theory, of, of, of scientific reductionism, we are in need of a, a savior, desperately. Our culture is in desperate need of a savior. And we are back to, a, I think, a wonderful time, a golden age of apologetics, as I've heard a lot of people say, but not just apologetics, but this opportunity that we have as Christians in this culture, uh, while we still have time, to, to, to show people, to give people the true narrative what is true and you have to tell a better story <laughs> right and and one of the things i wish we had more time to get into but was was how you spoke to all of the cultural the iconic cultural um um milestones that we have in the west from greek mythology from painting and music and poetry oh, yeah. it is so rich with the myths that you cover in this book if you uh, that, look at most of the, you know, before the, before maybe the, before maybe Impressionism, let's say, before the 19th century, which I like, but until that point, most of the great art and music, especially those two, and much of the literature is either coming out of the Bible or mythology. Okay, those yeah. are the two major sources of art and music and just the arts in general until pretty recently, really, into the 19th century. Yeah. 
uh, yeah. up until what they called the uh, neoclassical school. And then after that, right. they start changing. They turn inward. And, and yet it still haunts people. Somebody like, uh, uh, let's say, Picasso is haunted by the image of the Minotaur, let's say. Mm. Right. So there are many in Dali. There are many that still not as much as it used to be, but are still and some are just looking for a whole new mythology. Yeah. So we turn to the superheroes and things like that, just science fiction and fantasy in general. Well, even but we understand that we are. Wait, what is it that 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 um, Michael Ward helped to remind us of that science that 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 reason is the organ of knowledge, right? But imagination is the organ of meaning, mm-hmm. right? To mm-hmm. understand the meaning of something, the deeper meaning, we need imagination. So that the reason can show us the one-to-one logic in an allegory, but to understand the deeper meaning and why we keep reading it. We need to appeal to imagination. That's the organ of meaning, C.S. Lewis says. And I think I think the myths help us. The, the myths that you cover in the book help us to better understand and integrate um, a, an appreciation for nature as well, yeah. for 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 the universe, uh, for creation, um, and for how God has acted in creation in not just creating it, but but coming down to us. Uh, these other Greek and Roman gods, the, the ambiguity of when they show up and when this happens and who they talk to, um, is now solidified in the person and the work of of Christ Jesus, um, who came to a specific place, a specific time, um, as the fulfillment of, as you say, the corn king, uh, yeah. as Lewis talked about. And it's it's you can sort of sum it up. Most people know the story of Pandora's box, right? She opens up yeah. the box, and out come all the terrors, the evils, death, war, plague, pestilence. All of that comes out. She shuts, closes it, and then there's that little voice, let me out. And it's hope that's at the bottom. They're understanding this, right? Mm. But that hope, you know, it's still, what's the word I want? It it, it doesn't have much power, right? There's this sort of hope. It's trapped at the Mm. bottom of the box. It's there. There's some hope, but it, 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 it doesn't really have much power. But then what do we have? The real Pandora, Eve who eats of the fruit of the knowledge of good, of a fatal kind of curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. Well, just like in the Pandora story, the release of evil into the world is immediately followed by just a little bit of hope. But in the story of the Garden of Eden, that hope comes immediately as well, but in the form of a prophecy, the ultimate proto-evangelium, right? I will put enmity between your seed and his seed, he will, he will uh, crush, he will bite your heel. The, the seed of the serpent, Satan, will crush the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. Yeah. This is exactly. I mean, when did Satan bite the heel of Christ? When he convinced the world, Jew, Gentile alike, to put Christ on the cross, literally above, right? But then through the cross, Christ was able to crush the head of Satan. Yeah. So it is the same story in some ways, but the story of Christ, the true myth offers a redemption that is not just static, it's not just hope at the bottom of the box, but it is a hope that is real and that has crushed the head of the serpent. Are we back to what you just said about the stars, mm-hmm. about Osiris and Hercules and all the other ones? And and remember that the stars, remember Re- Re- Revelation, what is it, 10 or something? Uh, when we find out what's happening in the heavenlies, when Christ is being born, when the serpent waiting to devour the child Remember, that's Herod, you know, Herod the Great. So even in the stars is written the ultimate struggle between the Savior and the beast, the, the, the worm, the dragon, the, all of them are the same, that gets its head crushed. Yeah, we, so, we, huh. I, 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 it got me to thinking about how that, these stories got up there. And, yeah. um, and, and I, I thought about it, that, that God writes this narrative in us, 
and we tell our best stories of course when in an oral culture your 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 heavens are your repository because people have said well ray come on you're you're doing gospel in the stars business we did god didn't God, we don't know what God meant by all these constellations, but I say, well, you know, here's the deal. We are telling our stories the way we understand them, and we're projecting our stories onto the constellation as, as mnemonic devices. Now, yes. this, this isn't to say that, that, I, that I know what, what God intended these star patterns to mean. They declare the glory of God. We know that. Mm-hmm. But, but the repository that we're left with, uh, the mythologies of, of the Greco-Roman era and even the Babylonian mythologies, some of these go back all the way to that. Um, these were oral stories told around the campfire, if you will, and uh, the the stars were remind were were sort of an ancient library. There are ancient cell phones. Here's where we're getting our narratives. We're putting the stories up there. We're telling the stories of struggle and redemption with 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 nature, with ourselves, with with kingdoms and and beasts. And and I and I think that that as we reflect on the glory of God, as as David did in Psalm eight, what it it, it brings that question right down to bear, Lou. The, the, what is man? Here's that you are mindful of him comes right in okay you're a good evangelical we all struggle with what about the person that never hears the gospel and we always immediately go to romans right well yeah. how will they know if no one's preached them and he says they have known for their voice has gone out to all the world. romans ten eighteen. yes romans 10. Right. but where does that come from look back it's the great psalm 19, psalm yes, 19. It's favorite psalm the heavens are telling the glory of the Lord. The skies are proclaiming his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they are not silent. Their voice has gone out to all the world. It's a reference to what we call general revelation. It is the stars speaking forth the glory of God. So Amen. it's amazing. A lot of people don't make that connection of yeah. where that Romans passage is quoting. That's right. That's right. Paul says, have they not heard? Yes, they have. Let me tell you how they have been heard. And then, as you say, Psalm 19, that's fantastic. Oh, and here's something exciting for those enjoying this kind of speaking. I just finished, first time I've ever done it, recording an audiobook version of the myth make nice and they're, they're still editing but it'll probably be on audible I don't, I don't even know if anybody sells cds anymore <laughs> but it will probably be streaming hopefully by the end of the summer oh fantastic streaming. fantastic and also a uh, classical academic press that i did this for they have something called classical university it's their own streaming service of lectures and whatnot and i took this book and i turned it into a nine-hour lecture series now that is not me reading out loud the book I'm redoing it in my mind, putting the myths together in a different way, just speaking directly to the camera like I'm doing now. But that's one I think you need their streaming service. Uh, but I know a lot of people are interested in those things. Yeah. So that's a classical you or classical university. Amen. That's so wonderful. We're just trying to get this word out in all different things because I think it's important. It's a way to reach the next generation with the myth that became fact. Absolutely. It's what C.S. Lewis did through Narnia. It's yeah. it's it's absolutely what he accomplished. He influenced generations of people, and even sometimes they were unaware of what Lewis was doing. Right. Yeah. Um, but but Narnia is is read and reread by adults, and uh, and it's it continues to inspire. And behind the engine behind Narnia is Lewis's love of myth, his love yeah. of medieval cosmology, and his love of Christ. The whole of Narnia speaks of Christ, as Lewis said in a, in a personal letter. And so I think with this book, Lou, I think we can recapture that and and get people to sort of get off not just this this 
this enlightenment idea that it, if it's only factually, positivistically true, right. empirically true, it, it, that's the only thing I want to deal with. I don't read fiction. I don't want to deal with this stuff. This is absolutely necessary. We need to get back to the language of parable and meta- metaphor and story and, and tell stories, good stories, that are redemptive and that point people towards the, the Word of God in Christ Jesus. So thank you so much, Lou, for your time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. And, and like I said, let's keep, let's keep telling the better story. Amen. If you're a regular listener of Apologetics Profile, we encourage you to check out Good Heavens, a podcast about the universe, science, astronomy, and cosmology from a biblical perspective, hosted by staff apologist Daniel Ray and Wayne Spencer. If you're a longtime listener of Good Heavens, we hope you'll check out Apologetics Profile, a weekly podcast that covers a variety of apologetics topics as well as Mormonism, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, and many other non-Christian ideas and worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Thank you for taking the time to join in the conversation today. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Dave Mitchell. 